It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. That would be me, and a pleasant good afternoon to you. Welcome to Wednesday. It is May Day, first day. Did I get that right? No. What did I just? I just, I just took it back in time a day, didn't I? <laughs> yeah. Got to remember to update the old uh, watch here. Or the sundial, as it's affectionately called around the office. Any of it, it's the second day of May. I knew that. Just testing you. And we welcome you to another edition of Lifeline. We are here, of course, Monday through Friday, addressing issues that impact your life, your world, and your Christian walk. A little bit later on, we're going to get into a conversation that I think will be upsetting to some. I'll, I'll tell you that quite frankly in advance. But I think it's one that needs to be had. We're going to visit with the editor of Catholic World News, Philip Lawler, who's just released a new book on Pope Francis. It is, I think, um, a fair attempt to look at many of the positives and some of the questionable positions of Pope Francis during his tenure as pontiff. We're going to talk about his new book called Lost Shepherd. We'll get to that conversation with Philip Lawler a little bit later on in tonight's program. But first, I want to lead off with the fact that tomorrow, of course, Thursday, the first Thursday in May, is the National Day of Prayer Day. And there will be events taking place all across the nation to mark this day, and and a timely one, given all that's been going on in the news, particularly in relationship to um, geopolitical affairs between North Korea and uh, now renewed issues and concerns regarding Iran. And it's, I think, important to be mindful that we shouldn't just simply as Christians set aside a day once a year to pray for those that are in leadership before us, but in fact it should be an attitude of prayer for our nation and its leaders, our church and its leaders, our families all the time. Joining me next is the Honorable Sam Rohrer, president of the American Pastors Network. He, by the way, is also uh, the writer and producer of Stand in the Gap, heard on radio stations across the country. And as always, Pastor Rohrer, great to have you on the program. Tomorrow, as I mentioned, is uh, the National Day of Prayer Day. And um, let's talk a bit about first your perspective on why this is an important day and why it ought to be not just an attitude of focusing on this one day a year, but a good launching point for more fervent prayer for our nation. Oh, I, I appreciate the way you set that up, uh, Craig. Um, no question about it. It's very, very important to have uh, a national prayer day, and that's what that is. But but God calls upon all believers. Uh, we're commanded to pray without ceasing, so that means we are to be in an attitude of prayer, uh, recognizing our dependency upon God, uh, that he is the source of blessing, he is the source of security, uh, he is the source of wealth, he's the source of all that we have that's good comes from God. And that ought to be a matter of, for each of us, a daily uh, matter of uh, entering into thanksgiving, uh, recognizing God as the uh, creator and the giver of all these things that are good. Uh, and then we can then go forward and pray for things that are of concern. 
but uh, a national day of prayer is something that we often don't think about, and that is that God really, throughout Scripture, most all of the promises of prayer in the Old Testament and go beyond are really national. So when we think of Second Chronicles 7, 14, if my people call by name, humble themselves in prayer, I'll heal their land. The promises through the Old Testament are really almost always national in scope. So when we call for a national day of prayer, it really ought to be the time that the people, the citizens, recognize their need for God and go to Him, but our national leaders should lead in prayer, and certainly our churches and our pulpits should lead uh, in prayer. I, I think of the prayer of Abraham Lincoln. It was, actually, it was actually a resolution passed by the U.S. Senate that President Lincoln signed, and he then generally gets credit for it. But, uh, but he, he, he made commentary that how, how we were, we've gone for years with great peace and prosperity and blessing, and in these days we've walked away from God. I'm paraphrasing. But, uh, but he said that we've, we've now gotten to a point where because we have forgotten to give God the, the, the thanks for what he's done, we stand here now in great need. And I think as a nation, uh, Craig, we as God's people in particular need to lead the way in recognizing what is it that God really wants from his people? What does he want from this nation? And I will say it's not just praying. Praying is good to do, but what God wants is obedience. Obedience by his people doing what he has said to do in his word, living the way he says to live. And, of course, that's what's through the Old Testament. So that's what I am praying for tomorrow, and I'm speaking to a large number of pastors. I'm going to be bearing down on that point and saying, what is it that we should pray about? We should be looking in the mirror and say, God, am I living obediently to you as you want? That's what God wants, and that's what God will bless. Tomorrow, as you mentioned, as there will be recognition across the nation in prayer meetings, breakfast meetings, gather at the flagpole meetings, all of it throughout the day tomorrow um, in focusing on this National Day of Prayer. You, as you mentioned, uh, Sam is going, will be um, speaking on the spiritual condition of the church, and that, that captured my attention because I thought in light of the need and the call to prayer here, um, the two oftentimes very much go hand in hand, and the health of one is oftentimes indicative of the health of the other, isn't it? Well, it really is. And, uh, you know, when I, when I think of the Church in America, I must say that the health of the Church in America is not good. How do I know that? Well, you know, when I, when I know from the numbers that less than 30% of the pulpits, the pastors in the pulpits, believe in the authority of Scripture. That gives an indication. And then it goes beyond. Uh, and look at that. I, and I really am taking the Revelation chapter 3 when, when Christ is give, talking to the various churches. And he goes to Laodicea, and he talks about the church of Laodicea as a church that has great wealth. They have great standing. They, they, they are a vibrant, I mean, from the outside anyways, a great entity, but God says, you are, you, are, you are off base. You think you're wealthy, but you're really desolate. You think you're well-dressed, but you are naked, because you've walked away from me, and you're trusting in what you have, and what I've given you, more than in me, the one who has given it to you. And if I could summarize the need of the Church in America right now, I really believe that we are trusting more in things than we are 
in bowing the knee in humility and obedience to the God who made us. And that is what God wants to see. But that kind of action, God will hear, and God will heal the divisions and all that comes in our nation, but not, not in the wrong sequence. We have to humble ourselves, coming back in obedience. God will hear that. He's promised that. That's what, that's what we need to pray about. And, and it really comes back full circle, as it is easy for us to talk about issues going on in the geopolitical realm, issues going on um, at, at layers of morality and what's happening within the family and marriage, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, the the real clarion call here, as you you delineated, without the specific reference to Second Chronicles seven fourteen, but you can, <laughs> is it's very clear, the notion that in order to see God's hand move and for the healing of the land to take place, God calls upon the church to humble itself and pray. And turn from our wicked ways. And, and, you know, some like to think that that is more directed toward those that are outside of the body of believers. But in fact, it is God who is calling for um, healing and repentance and restoration within the body of believers. And then once that takes place, that will free the hand of God to begin moving upon all of the nation. But it really becomes ultimately then incumbent upon us, doesn't it? It, it absolutely does. I think of the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 30. It's a, it's a chapter that says where God says, I command you this day, love the Lord your God, walk in his ways, keep his commandments, his statutes, his judgments, that you may live and multiply, and God will bless you in the land. And then he comes back and says, but I call heaven and earth to record a record this day against you. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life, and that life is obedience to me, that I may bless you. So really, obedience is choosing life and blessing, walking away from God. God says in that passage, Deuteronomy 15, that Deuteronomy chapter 30, that choosing to do something else and to forget the God of heaven is to choose cursing and judgment. That's the holy, righteous nature of God. We have to come to him in his terms, live on his terms, but when we do, blessing will be ours. Tomorrow, Thursday, of course, the National Day of Prayer across the nation, and we invite you, wherever you happen to be, to pause, if you can gather with the group, uh, in uh, communion and prayer in a... uh congregational fashion. That would be fantastic. Sometimes work obligations uh, preclude that preclude that from being possible. But if you would uh, pause for a few moments somewhere during the day and uh, pray for our nation and then use that as the beginning of a habit that, uh, as Paul suggested, we should pray without ceasing. And a lot of that has to do with our attitude as well as our engagement in prayer. Our thanks to Pastor Sam Rohr, president of the American Pastors Network, for that update on the National Day of Prayer. 515, let's get an update for you now on traffic. We take a look at your Wednesday ride home with Michael Bennett in the KFAX Traffic Center. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Welcome back to the program, 20 minutes after the hour of 5 p.m. It was shock, certainly to the world, with the passing of Pope John Paul II, the legacy of his papacy, which uh, stretched some uh, near three decades, had had an impact globally and an impact, I think, on people, whether or not they necessarily were Roman Catholics. The transition into the administration of... The next pope, 
Pope then Benedict XVI was a challenge, a challenge in many ways, not only because his style was very different from that of John Paul II, but he also came into a papacy that was facing some huge problems in relationship to many of the scandals that had been plaguing Roman Catholicism related to the um, pedophilia scandals. His papacy, as you know, at least from a historic standpoint, was a very short-lived one, and one that um, certainly joins the ranks of rare papacies in that he voluntarily stepped down from his position and was actually only in office from 2005 to 2013. His successor, the topic of our discussion today, Pope Francis, a humble cardinal that had been serving in Argentina, um, certainly seemed at the onset to breathe a, fresh, a breath of fresh air into the papacy. Here was a man who seemed to be extremely humble, seemed to be just sort of one of the guys. Um, note, for example, the fact that after his ascension into the papacy, um, he got on the bus with the rest of the cardinals to go back to his hotel and paid his own bill out of his own pocket, seemingly for the moment forgetting the fact that he was no longer just another cardinal, but had suddenly ascended to the highest position within Roman Catholicism. The sense of enthusiasm, though, over the papacy of Pope Francis uh, began to wane um, quite quickly, particularly for more conservative, traditional Roman Catholics, as questions came into the forefront, not just over the pontiff's style, but also the number of positions that he took, some suggesting that those positions began to run contrarian to historical Catholic catechism. We take a look today at the life of the Pope and his impact on the Roman Catholic Church as we're joined by Philip Lawler, graduate of Harvard University. He is by far one of America's most respected Catholic journalists. He serves as editor of Catholic World News and is the author of a new book called Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. And Philip, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me the, the subtitle, uh, let's talk about that for a moment. Um, misleading, or might some say in some forms that some of the suggestions that he's made doctrinally, some of the positions that the Pope has taken might even be concluded to be leading the flock astray. What do you think? Well, I think that that's sort of the point. It's the question that still is unresolved in my own mind is, whether he is leading the flock astray or he's simply confusing the flock. But one way or another, there's not a clear voice from the shepherd. And there's an awful lot of both confusion and dissension and, and uh, division within the Catholic Church that there wasn't a few years back. It strikes me that sometimes his papacy has some comparisons to the presidency of Donald Trump in that um, he has a perchance toward... Um, off-the-cuff remarks, straying away from prepared notes, um, often speaks, and then the Vatican has to scramble to then come back with the official language pertaining to um, some pronouncement, comment, or observation made by the Pope. And um, sometimes those comments or observations are not always well healed in terms of appearing to be completely in line with historical Catholic doctrine. And, of course, it becomes problematic because for many Roman Catholics that observe the infallibility of the Pope look at this and say, 
you know, this is a little bit confusing here, and we have to wonder, is this sort of um, the next breath of fresh air to come into Roman Catholicism vis-a-vis the the last big changes that occurred during the Second Vatican Council? Or is this perhaps the new direction by a pope that is at at some levels, as you explain in the book, um, uh, perhaps too anchored, too moored to his uh, Jesuit roots, and um, also perhaps awfully, uh, uh, how should we say, um, inclined to um, make rash decisions and to avoid organization. You've given me quite a bit to chew on there, but uh, you're not unique in seeing uh, similarities between Pope Francis and President Trump. But there's a very crucial difference, and let me explain it, that President Trump is a politician. Everybody understands that, and politicians take their own stands and promote their own programs. Not so with the successor to St. Peter. I mean, the the Roman pontiff, the head of the Catholic Church, as head of the Catholic Church, his job is to preserve what has been handed down to him by his predecessors, by all the previous popes going back to St. Peter. And if he varies from that line, then he puts us in a real quandary, because if you think about it, we as Catholics believe that the Pope, uh, when he speaks, uh, he can speak authoritatively on matters of faith and morals. But that doesn't mean just this Pope, it means all the Popes. So if this Pope contradicts what previous Popes have said, then he's undermining his own authority, because the authority is only... uh, as part of a consistent thing that's handed down to us for 2,000 years. And that's why I say so much confusion has arisen, because of the statements that he's made that seem clearly in conflict with statements made by Pope John Paul II, Pope Benedict, and, and dozens of others before them. I don't know necessarily that this is a position that one... Um, longs for, and and I would suspect if most of the popes down through the centuries um, would be candid, they would probably tell you that uh, while they accepted the position, it was not one that they they ever saw themselves in, and and uh, if if easily given an option, might have said no thanks, I pass. I, I wonder if some of what we're seeing here then is indicative of a man who kind of got caught by surprise here, and maybe is having a difficult time making the transition from being just another cardinal, the the bishop from Argentina, to now the leader of over a billion Roman Catholics. That's not, a, that's not a, a, an absurd thing to think, to worry about, wonder about, and it's something that I wondered about in the first months of the pontificate. And just to be clear with your listeners, uh, at the early on, I was very in, I was very enthusiastic about Pope Francis, and I was one of the very many people who thought he was a breath of fresh air, and he brought a new energy and a new style to the uh, to the office that was very refreshing and encouraging, and encouraged evangelization and encouraged an awful lot of people to be thinking about Catholicism who hadn't been thinking about it in the past. But times change, and you do need to adapt to your new office, and that's why I felt as the months passed, uh, the enthusiasm waned. I personally, along with many, many other Catholics, started 
questioning statements that he made, and rather than adapting to the office, it seems to me he dug in his heels. Uh, he insisted on making extemporaneous comments and, and uh, off-the-cuff remarks, which, frankly, he's not very good at. And by the way, when I say that, my authority is Pope Francis, who himself said, uh, before he was elected as Pope, he said, I'm not very good at interviews. So it's it's odd that now he's giving interviews more than anyone else before him in that office. And while some might applaud that as being accessible, uh, it does raise concerns because as you speak, uh, there's that sense that, uh, yeah, there's a big difference between uh, perhaps an off-the-cuff remark made by a politician uh, who by no wise, uh, hopefully, thinks that they are speaking on behalf of very God himself or has anywhere near the sense of gravitas uh, assigned to their words. This, of course, is a different case for uh, the pontiff, and it makes it a, a problematic position to be in. And then when we add to that some of the observations that you make in the book, and I, I want to be careful and say to listeners here as a quick aside, in reading through the book, and I've gone through it cover to cover, Philip has been, I think, extra cautious in not appearing or, or to, at every level, avoiding the appearance of piling on, being hypercritical, being fair. Um, he, in fact, I think, has gone out of his way to try to extend every degree of understanding and grace and attempt to try and, and understand the positions taken by the Pope. In, in the light of certainly historical Roman Catholic catechism, as well as in, in light of Scripture. And in, in doing so, I think, has put together a thoughtful book that raises some very legitimate questions. The book is called Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. We're going to take a brief time out. We'll come back to... One of the biggest challenges that the Pope faced, that Pope Francis faced coming into the Vatican, and what appears to be at many levels the utter failure to address this issue that has global implications. That is our conversation with best-selling author Philip Lawler continues here on KFAX. 531, let's get an update for you on traffic. We'll head over to the KFAX Traffic Center. Once again, good afternoon to Michael Bennett. Michael. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. We are back in our conversation. Best-selling author Philip Lawler with us today, editor of Catholic World News. He is the author of a new book called Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. Now, I hesitate to use, Philip, uh, an example of another politician, but I, but I will for the moment just bear with me. It was said along 2008-2009 that the incoming president, whoever he would be, if that president could simply deal with the faltering economy in the United States, which, as we all know, was in a tailspin by March of 2009, if simply that could be accomplished, that president would go down in history as an absolute hero. In many respects, that sort of single-issue mandate also faced Pope Francis in that as Pope Benedict XVI was leaving office. He came in, as I suggested in my opening remarks, facing some big challenges in relationship to the uh, sex scandals that had rocked Catholicism across the globe. Um, at many levels, I think he found it ultimately challenging 
to address these issues, eventually stepped down. Into that situation came Pope Francis, and it could have been a case where if he did nothing in his pontificate, then address that issue adequately, he would probably be revered as a hero to both Catholics and non-Catholics worldwide. Sadly, though, that big issue that has been such a headache for Roman Catholicism has just sat and languished. Why is that? Why has this failed to be the kind of priority for this pontiff as everybody thought it would be or should be when he came into office? That's a really good question. Pope Francis has made a number of very good statements about demanding accountability and responsibility and transparency in dealing with sex abuse complaints. But his actions really have not matched the statements. And in fact, just uh, this past weekend, he met with a group of sex abuse victims from Chile, and he told them in apparently a very emotional session that he recognized he had been part of the problem. So that's a good sign. Uh, Maybe at last we'll see some action, but to date we, we haven't seen action that's been adequate to match the statements that have been made. In fact, I I would argue that we've seen some backsliding, because although Pope Benedict doesn't get much credit, he really did institute a lot of changes that were designed to hold bishops accountable for how they uh, handled complaints about clerical abuse. And the accountability has, has slipped backwards in the last five years. That's uh, that's very troubling, to be sure, and um, I have to wonder if some of it is in relationship to um, trying to, how should we say, pack the court, for want of a better term. He He's had a tendency to surround himself in his appointments with a lot of people that are obviously close to him and favorable to him. And and, uh, sadly, sometimes in those positions, they have therefore failed to really, in an aggressive fashion, carry out this mandate uh, to adequately address the sexual malfeasance among priests, do you think? Absolutely. That's definitely a problem uh, during this pontificate that Pope Francis has chosen to treat some of his close associates with a little bit of a different standard so that uh, there are a few cardinals, Cardinal Daniels comes to mind, Cardinal Maradiaga, who have been accused or of not of sexual abuse themselves, but of uh, ignoring complaints of sexual abuse, and have not been held accountable in the way that other bishops have been. It seems that there's a little bit of a double standard going on, so that the Pope favors his, he favors his favorites, and there hasn't been that that no... Uh, tolerance policy that everybody wants. And the call for major changes not only touches this topic, but another area that, again, I want to be clear, this is a problem that he inherited, but nevertheless it became his uh, once uh, once he became pope, and that is issues related to the Vatican banking scandal and money laundering and all of those matters. And, you know, you, you have observed in the book that this pope seemingly has been susceptible to manipulation by uh, those that are anxious to restore the status quo. And, and I would suspect 
some of those on that list um, not only don't like change, but don't like change that allows the light of day to be shown upon their activities. Would that be accurate? That would be exactly accurate. And that on that score, we haven't seen just a little bit of backsliding. It's been uh, it's been an avalanche. Pope Francis instituted the Secretariat for the Economy, and the idea was to bring accountability and transparency to finance. And then he rescinded the most important powers that he'd given that office. Right now, the man who was put in charge of that office, Cardinal George Pell, is back in Australia facing criminal charges, uh, and is on a leave of absence, which that's another story entirely. But the point is, he's not in his office at the Vatican. His secretary, the number two man in that department, was given a new job several months ago and hasn't been replaced. The Auditor General of the Vatican was removed and has not been replaced. So we have, you know, essentially an empty office that's not performing its functions and a complete rollback of the initial effort to bring transparency to finances. And of course, that works in favor of people who don't want transparency and we all know what kind of people those are. And the irony, of course, is if you could look at this and say, well, he's trying to be um, very deliberate, very cautious here. He doesn't want to move too fast. Uh, this is, as they say, the, a big ship uh, turns very slowly. And yet there are other areas, particularly in arenas related to um, official Catholic doctrine, where the Pope seemingly has uh, not only wanted to move fast, but has been on a, uh, a breakneck pace in some arenas. Um, Let's talk about one of them, uh, and there are many, but but one in particular that has been creating um, uh, a sense of, what should we say, uh, disunity uh, amongst Catholics at many levels, and that has been um, papal viewpoints on things such as um, marriage, divorce, and communion. Yes, and that is, as you know, since you read the book, and just by the way, I want to thank you for what you said before the break, I did try to be very careful in putting this book together, particularly on questions of doctrine, because it's questions of doctrine that are most troublesome to me. And the questions about marriage and the Eucharist, which are absolutely central to the Catholic faith, it would be difficult to think of any two subjects that are more central to Catholic faith. And on those issues, what the Pope seems to be saying uh, is radically different from what his predecessors said. And now I have to emphasize what he seems to be saying because he has not been clear and he has refused pleas for clarification. So the net result is really a horrible confusion. And and this, you know, again, part of it goes back to some of the ambiguity that seems to uh, attend some of his positions. Uh, and I would suspect a lot of that goes back to the notion that he has, as you point out in the book, disdain for organization and a penchant for quick decisions, which runs very contrarian historically to uh, not only um, 
previous occupants of his position, but historically within Roman Catholicism, major changes don't come fast. The church has been very slow, and in many respects, people say we applaud that because it's provided the one arena of stability where um, some denominations are quick to make changes and then oftentimes regret what they've done because they, they acted out of haste or societal pressure. Instead, the Roman Catholic Church has said, no, we're going to be slow, we're going to be deliberate, and uh, we are first and foremost going to stay true to the historical underpinnings of um, doctrine. And here's the case where um, there's a departure from that. Well, that's why I think my book, I hope my book would be interesting not just to Catholics, but to anybody who's interested in these issues and interested in issues about, you know, the health of our society and our culture, because everybody knows that the Catholic Church has taken a stand on some of these issues, most notably the issue of marriage. And if the Catholic Church seems to waver, that affects a lot of people who are not Catholics, who have been looking to Catholicism as one standard against which you could measure other people's beliefs. And so when you have the Pope who comes out with this document, Amoris Laetitia, it's an apostolic constitution on marriage, and it's the longest papal document ever written, and the entire public debate on that document has boiled down to a debate about a footnote in the longest document ever written by a pope. And you wonder, where is the sense of proportion here that the most important message is being buried, half-buried, implicitly in a footnote so that everybody's left wondering what is it that's really being said here. It's a tremendous uh, blow to the sort of sense of certainty and, and permanence that all sorts of people, not just Catholics, look to in the Catholic Church. Well, and one of the issues here, too, I think, and this perhaps is an opinion held by those both within and without the Church, would say, well, there are aspects in which we want to be progressive enough that we are uh, aware of what's going on trends and so forth within society. That doesn't necessarily mean that we embrace those trends or, or endorse them at any level. But when you see what appears to, at least on the surface, be um, waffling on topics related to marriage, divorce, communion, um, the bigger issue of this, this process of streamlining annulment, which I've heard some Catholics voice the opinion that, well, if that's happening, then does that sort of uh, establish the slippery slope upon which other arenas of uh, the traditions of marriage may potentially be at risk here? And I think it's a very valid question. Well, Pope Francis approved some policies to streamline the process for annulment before he issued that document that I just mentioned to Morris Letizia. And the funny thing is that once the processes for stream, the streamlined processes are in place, there's even less reason for the sort of document that he put out. Let me explain that from the perspective of the Catholic faith, marriage is forever. So if you are married and divorced, you should never be married again. An annulment is not a sort of Catholic equivalent of divorce. It is a finding that a marriage, a real marriage, never took place, that you were not married in the eyes of the Church at any time. So by streamlining the process, 
the Pope made it easier for people to say, no, we, we didn't form a real, true Christian marriage, and so we should be free to marry again. Okay. But what about the people who did form a true, valid Christian marriage? The Church can't now say, well, okay, contrary to what everyone has said for 2,000 years, contrary to the words of Jesus Christ himself in the Gospel, we're going to say now it's okay for you to marry again. That's a complete uh, renunciation of what the the Catholic Church has stood for for 2,000 years. And therein lies this sense of ambiguity that I think is um, causing consternation and confusion. Our guest today is best-selling author Philip Lawler. The book is Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. We take a brief time out. We'll come back to more of our conversation as Lifeline continues. All right, 10 away from 6. Let's get you updated right quick here traffic-wise. Michael Bennett, what's going on out there? And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to our conversation. Philip Lawler, our guest today, he, as we mentioned, is the editor of Catholic World News. He has written a very respectful and thoughtful book on the topic of the papacy of Pope Francis, and most notably the positions that he takes as Pope, the influence that he has as such. The book is called Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock. The book, by the way, is newly published by Regnery Gateway, same great outfit that is owned by this fine radio station. And you can get the book at uh, the usual suspects, Amazon.com. And uh, you can also, is it available online somewhere, Philip? Well, through Amazon or or, uh, Barnes & Noble, I think you can get it directly from Regnery as well. Okay, so all the usual suspects, you can pick up a copy. It is a very compelling and thoughtful read. And um, while you're very careful uh, to not be a basher in this sense, I think you you raise some very um, legitimate questions here. I'm just going to raise up three or four points and have you respond to them to kind of encapsulate here some of the areas of concern that many have voiced. Um, we've heard the Pope publicly make comments about uh, rigid Christians. Um, He has weighed in on the topic of abortion by saying that some people are obsessed with the topic. In an interview that he granted to um, an Italian newspaper, La Repubblica, he seemed to suggest that there is no eternal punishment, that hell itself does not exist, which, of course, would be a major departure, not only from historical Roman Catholic teaching, but um, a historical Protestant teaching as well. The Pope seems to have um, some ambiguity when it comes to gender dysphoria, and ironically enough, has been a vocal defender of Islam and has gone as far as suggesting that terrorism is not the result of any of the teachings of Islam, but rather the product of global economics. When we kind of look at all of these topics together, and I I want to be careful to differentiate between those matters that are of a doctrinal concern versus those that are of sort of a a moral and operational concern, such as uh, the Vatican Bank and uh, the, uh, the sexual scandals. But when you look at all of this together, it begins to paint a bit of a troubling picture. Sure it does. Uh, let me say before I say anything else, that on most of these statements, uh, most of those questions that you, that you cite, you can find counter, contradictory statements from Pope Francis. 
statements and say he's very much against gender ideology. He's certainly 100% against abortion and so forth, which illustrates the confusion that I see as the major problem of this uh, his leadership in the Church. However, I think the bigger point that you're making stands that when he makes controversial statements, they all seem to fall in one direction. That is, it's, it's not just a lack of clarity, but it's a tendency to side with the left, to, to go with the prevailing stream. Um, and when you look to church leadership, that's not what you're looking for. You're not looking for uh, the comfortable, politically correct position. You're looking for permanent truth, and you're looking for someone who will go against the tide, and that has not been the strong point of Pope Francis. He's been characterized by some as being a bit authoritarian and a bit erratic. Um, again, he, he stepped into a role um, from an organizational standpoint that is far different and significantly larger than that of where he came from, um, serving as a cardinal and prior to that uh, a bishop in Argentina. Is that in part along with, and Catholics who are listening will understand my observation here, along with his Jesuit roots that may be contributory to all of this? And I don't mean to suggest that there's anything necessarily um, wrong with uh, Jesuit teaching, but to suggest that a lot of the emphasis on social justice um, sometimes is perceived as being um, liberal when it comes to uh, more of the core doctrines of the faith. One of the true mysteries to me about Pope Francis is involves his Jesuit background. He is a member of the Jesuit order. Uh, he was not popular among his fellow Jesuits for most of his uh, clerical life. He was the provincial of the Jesuits in Argentina and extremely unpopular there. Uh, he did not associate with other Jesuits during his uh, stay as Archbishop of Buenos Aires. When he traveled to Rome, he didn't stay in Jesuit residences and so forth. Uh, since he has been elected Pope, he has surrounded himself with Jesuits, and he has been extremely popular with the mainstream of the Jesuit order, which, as you suggest, is really quite liberal, not only on political, but also on doctrinal issues. So to me, that's one of the unresolved mysteries. I'd love to know what happened there that that changed that relationship, but the, the change is very evident to anybody who's looking. Certainly, historically, unless he follows in the footsteps of his predecessor, um, he is going to be around for a number of years to come and will leave a, a major mark on the Church. Um, what kind of a legacy, based on what you've seen with the pattern so far, what kind of a legacy will ultimately the uh, papacy, papacy of Pope Francis be? Well, we don't know. The story hasn't all been written yet, and uh, those of us who are Catholics who pray for the Pope every day hope that he will change. Uh, and there's plenty of time for change, and there are plenty of precedents of Popes who have changed during their pontificates. And uh, I still ho I hold out a great deal of hope for that. If he does not change the way he's running the Church, I think that the legacy that he will... Um, have is one of confusion, and it will take years and years to clear it up. 
we as Catholics have been in a period of turmoil since the 60s and the Second Vatican Council, and we were beginning to emerge from that turmoil and have a, a better sense of unity and shared identity in the 80s and 90s and early in the 21st century under Pope John Paul II and Pope Benedict. And now we're thrust right back into the controversies of the 60s and 70s, which are destructive of the unity of the Church and also destructive of the evangelical purpose of the Church, because when we're too busy fighting internal battles to go out and try to change the world and convert the world. I think a very, um, again, reasoned approach to many of these topics that, uh, to be sure, at many levels are, are topics of concern and interest to anyone of the faith, whether or not your particular uh, denominational background happens to be Roman Catholic. I think there's something to be learned at many levels from this book. It's one that can also be a, a tremendous, uh, how should we say, catalyst for prayer. The book is called Lost Shepherd, How Pope Francis is Misleading His Flock, newly published by Regnery Press, and its author, our guest on this segment of Lifeline, Philip Lawler. And Philip, thank you again so much for uh, your time and uh, for the insights you've shared. We're here at 6 o'clock from KFAX San Francisco. That means time for me to step aside, at least for a moment here, get you updated on some headline news. But we'll take a look at traffic first. To do so at the KFAX Traffic Center, Michael Bennett, what's going on?